Turn to Galatians chapter 6. It's where we're at. We have a lot of review to do tonight because this is the last lesson in our going through the book of Galatians. And so next time, that's the trouble. When you get to the end of the book, you've got a lot more to review than what you did when you just started out in the first of the book. But hopefully you will have a clear understanding of what the book is about when we're done so that if anybody uses it to teach something other than what the book is teaching, that you will have a clue and be able to stand up against it. This is very vital that we know what the scripture says. Now, first of all, you've got to have the right scripture. Because you realize all those different translations all use different words. And remember, you change the words, you change the thoughts. That's why Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. The words matter. And even in this book, we learned uh, the difference between the seed of Abraham and seeds. Just the difference of that one letter is a tremendous doctrinal difference in the entire passage. God's very specific in His Word. That's why it's important we know what the Word is and, uh, and follow it. All right, let's uh, read the verses. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 6. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ, for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Christ Jesus, I'm sorry, of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and, 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 and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. All right, let's review a little bit. First of all, the human author of the book of Galatians is who? Paul. Very good. Now, we know that God is the author of the book. Two basic dates have been given by most commentators. Uh, one is a little later date. That's the first date we'll mention, which is what? 58. The other date is an earlier date, and that is 49 A.D. Now, it does... Uh, yes, you can see evidence in throughout the book for both times. However, it doesn't matter the time. If it was really important, God would have told us what the timing of the book was, but he didn't tell us because the truth is eternal throughout all of the church age, and that is that we are justified by faith. doesn't matter what year that was written that uh, man was able to get it as far as that goes. But we try to keep all that in perspective. Secondly, uh, our next, it is written to who? The churches. Now you remember those are the churches that Paul and Barnabas started on their first missionary journey when they went up through Antioch of city and Iconium and Lystra. Lystra, of course, is where Paul got stoned. And, uh, and that doesn't mean he got drunk. I mean, they threw rocks at him and stoned him. And then Derby. 
Now, it's in that area, what is known today as the central part of Turkey. If you were to look at a map of over that part of the world, uh, that was the area of Galatia. And it's to these churches that he is writing. Uh, let's see. And the uh, purpose of the book is what? Correcting error. And the theme of the book is what? Amen. And the key verse is found in chapter 2 and verse what? So let's all find it, young and old alike, and let's read it out loud together. Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, remember one of the keys to understanding the book is to picture yourself, picture yourself as though you're in one of those churches of Galatia hearing it read. Paul fully expected the people that were listening to the book be read, he expected them to understand what he was writing about. There were a lot of the books of the Bible that had not been written yet. The book of John had not been given yet. First and Second Timothy had not been given yet. Titus, Titus had not been given yet. Uh, first and Second and Third John, the book of the Revelation, had not been given yet. First and Second Peter had not been given yet. Probably Jude had not been given yet. And these people were expected to understand it. So the first thing you do when you read any of these epistles is what was it that these people were supposed to understand? What was the main message that he was giving them? Now, there may be other applications that you can get out of the book other than what he is directly dealing with, but if those applications differ or oppose what it's clearly saying, then you've perhaps got the wrong application to the book. It's important that we understand this because so many people reason their way into something that goes well beyond what was being said in the book. This book is about being justified by faith. We learn about the problem. You remember after his first missionary journey, we got to Acts chapter 15. And the Bible says in verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. There were people that followed Paul around. And after he would leave town, they would say, believing in Christ is fine, but you're not saved until you be circumcised according to the law of Moses. The second verse says this in Acts chapter 15. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. And that's what they did. That's called the Jerusalem Council. It took place in about 50 A.D. And there the church stood with the Apostle Paul and also with Peter. As a matter of fact, with so many Jews being saved in the first part of the book of Acts, many of these had been Pharisees, just like the Apostle Paul had been a Pharisee. We learn from chapter 21 that there was a great number of these people who were zealous for the law. Now, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. The law is holy. Romans chapter 7 makes that very plain. Uh, so the law is not bad. It tells us we're sinners. It shows us that we need a Savior. Everybody does. And that that only one who's ever obeyed all the law is Jesus Christ himself. 
So we put our faith and trust in Christ. We are justified by faith. But these people had come into Galatia after Paul. The people of Galatia had believed the gospel that the apostle Paul preached. And after the first five verses of a simple salutation, he goes after them right away. He says, I marvel that you're so soon removed, that you've changed so quickly. And I'll tell you, every pastor has probably had to say something like that sometime in their ministry, how quickly people get turned away from the truth. But he rebukes them for it. And he even says, if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats that curse in the next verse, in verse 9. And then in the remainder of the book, he reminds these people where he got the gospel. He didn't get it from Peter. He didn't get it from James. He didn't get it from the other apostles. He got it from Jesus Christ himself. Now that puts them on the spot. They're going to have to make a decision. Is it these people who came in that said we had to keep the law and be circumcised according to the law in order to be saved? Are they the ones that have the gospel or does Paul have the gospel? Paul, obviously, is the one who had the gospel. He doesn't back down. This isn't a point of discussion. This is a point of dissension and disputation. There are things that we are to stand for. Just read the book of Jude. For the faith once delivered to the saints, we are to take a strong stand. No backing down. We don't give way to heretics. You allow, you put a little bit of poison in a pure glass of water and you got a full glass of poison. That's the way it is spiritually. Stand by the truth of the word of God. We get into chapter 2 and he reminds us that when he went up to Jerusalem, they had nothing to add to him. They agreed with his message. Everything went fine. But later, we find that the apostle Peter went up to the church at Antioch of Syria. He went up to that church where Paul and Barnabas had been ministering, and he fellowshiped with all the the believers, the Gentile believers, the Jewish believers. But when some of these same rascals that Paul calls false brethren in chapter 2 and verse 5 of the book of Galatians, when they came out of that church at Rome, at at, uh, Jerusalem, and went up there to Antioch, that they influenced Peter. Peter actually separated himself from the Gentile believers to eat only with the Jewish believers. And for that, Paul withstood him to his face. You see, your doctrine is to match your lifestyle, and your lifestyle is to match your doctrine. You say you believe the Bible's the word of God, then live it. Then live it. I mean, after all, it's either the truth or it's not. I believe it's true. We're going to live it. And once you start moving away from the word of God, you have done cut anchor. You've got no place to settle. You're going to be changing every year. You're going to be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. And so he deals with them very strongly. Imagine having to withstand Peter to the face. Do you think maybe Paul thought he was right? Now, there's no doubt he thought he was right. And he stood for what was right. And Peter, even after all this time, you would think Peter would be a guy who'd never be swayed. You would have thought he'd have learned his lesson when he denied the Lord. But no, here we are. This is after Christ ascended to heaven. God's been using Peter. This is long after the day of Pentecost when he had three, when 3,000 people got saved on that day and followed the Lord and believers' baptism. Uh, but even Barnabas, 
Barnabas was drawn away because of what Peter did. And then the Jewish believers that were at Antioch, they also were influenced by what took place. Please understand that what you do does influence others. It does even, even if they don't intend to put pressure on people, it does put pressure on others. We all have influence. No man is an island. And we give an account for how we have influenced other people. Well, so they've dealt with that. We talk about chapter 1, then in chapter 2, we get to verse 16, which we've already read. We read that we are not justified by the law. The whole, the whole passage, all that we're dealing with from here through the first part of chapter 5 is the argument that we're justified by faith. We are not justified by the law. We are not justified by our works. Our works do not get us to heaven. Our works do not keep us on the road to heaven. Uh, salvation is totally wrapped up in faith, not in works. It even says in verse 21 I do not of chapter 2, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And you remember that when Paul writes the book of Romans later, when referring to the Jews, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, that they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So we get into chapter 3, and you notice how he starts the chapter, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? What on earth has taken place that you could be turned from the very clear gospel to this false gospel? What could happen? And then he reasons with them for a moment. Uh, at the first, did, did you receive it by the hearing of faith or do you receive it by the works of the law? Then are you so foolish as to think that somehow the works of the law are going to save you when that didn't save you to begin with and it can't keep you saved? And so he deals with that. We go on through chapter 3. We have like in verse 8 and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, still dealing with being justified, justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. Now there's a heresy even among some who believe their King James Bible. They believe that there are several different dispensations. That's not the heresy. I, I can see some dispensations there. I don't think it's a major Bible point, but the major Bible point is this. People have always gotten saved the same way. By grace, through faith. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Paul makes it very plain that even before the law, that Abraham was justified by faith. For it says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He says it in this book. He says it in the book of Romans as well. But you'll notice here he makes that statement that Abraham had the gospel preached unto him. Now think about that. We know that when Abraham took his son Isaac up to the mount, he believed in a resurrection. He was willing to sacrifice him because that was the promised son of God. And according to chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, God believed, or I'm sorry, Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. Why did he believe that? Well, guess what? That had been preached unto him. Who would have done that? God would have done it. 
Just like Paul got the, got the gospel that he preached from Jesus Christ himself. So Abraham got the gospel as well preached unto him. And you remember in John chapter 8, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. That's an amazing statement. Abraham saw it. Well, God must have showed it to him, for he had it back then. Praise God for it. You go down to verses 10 and 11. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Those trying to get to heaven by keeping the law, they're cursed. And he tells us why. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So we read in this that Abraham was justified by faith before the law and without the law. The seed that God promised Abraham was not Isaac. Now, Isaac was a promised son, but the seed by which all would be blessed was Jesus Christ himself. It's not entrusting Isaac that people get saved. It's entrusting Jesus Christ that you get saved. That's the seed, singular, of Abraham that makes the difference in you're going to heaven or not. The promise of righteousness by faith in Christ. For righteousness, the law brought us to the heir. The heir, H-E-I-R, is Jesus Christ. And according to the book of Romans chapter 8, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He makes the point in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, that we have we were servants, but we've been made sons by faith. And so we are now sons of God by which we cry, Abba, Father. And then he carried the illustration all the way through chapter 4. He talks about the allegory that is taught with Hagar and with Sarai and their children, Ishmael and, uh, and Isaac. Uh, so he deals with that. Now, and listen, don't go crazy on this allegory stuff. First of all, Hagar was a real person. Sarai was a real person. All right. But there is a picture in them for us to help us realize again that it, we're justified by faith. We're not justified by the flesh. We're not justified uh, by our walk, but it's by faith. And that's the point. You have a lot of Bible commentators where they make allegories and pictures out of everything. And I say we ought to only be making allegories and pictures out of things that are obviously allegories and pictures. And you know when God normally does that, he gives the explanation for it. He doesn't trust our reasoning to come up with a reasonable explanation for it, but he gives us the explanation. So if, if you hold to that, it'll keep you from being led astray by a lot of these uh, folks that are around. So we get to chapter 5. He tells us to stand fast in the liberty. And it is amazing how many of these commentaries want to talk about the liberty that we have because we don't have to worry about the law anymore. We don't have to worry about, uh, about standards. And somehow they bring standards into this matter of liberty. When you've got in the psalm, the psalmist said that I walk at liberty because I love thy precepts. Jesus was at liberty and he obeyed all of God's word. You understand, it's not bondage to live by God's word. But you see, we are at liberty that, all right, what about when I mess up? Well, thank God, man, I've been justified by faith. 
I don't have to go around worrying whether or not I've done enough, been good enough, attended enough services, preached enough messages, prayed enough. I don't have to worry about that. I'm on my way to heaven. I've been justified. It's taken care of. That's the liberty that we have. Then you get to verse 4. He says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law. Again, chapter 5. He is still talking about being justified by the law. He gives a few more explanations. Like in verse 7, he says, you did run well. Who did hinder you? Who were these guys that came in? He's not asking what church they came out of. They came out of the churches around Judea, but they were zealous for the law and they were lost. He calls them false brethren. You've got to be careful. Just because somebody comes from a good church doesn't mean that they're doctrinally sound. So you check it out. The Ephesian church was commended in Revelation chapter 2 for making sure that those who said they were apostles were. Nothing wrong with checking things out. That's okay. So he asked who these people were, and he gets down in, uh, in the latter part of chapter 5, verse 16. He says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. All right, since I'm saved, I'm going to heaven now. And I realize this flesh, man, Paul says in Romans 7, 18, I know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. I've got a problem with this flesh. He says, now, since you're justified by faith, you're free. Now you're free to be able to live like you ought to live. So how am I going to do that? Walk in the spirit. And then he says in verse 17, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. There's a battle going on in us. And we get disappointed by that, don't we? But since I got saved, I've had the Holy Spirit of God living within me. And I've got this flesh, which is corrupt, that's still on me. That's the battle that takes place. He says about the flesh in verse 19. He says in verse uh, yeah, 19 of chapter 5, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And then he describes them. It's not pretty. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Those are the works of the flesh. Now, I'm assuming we read this. I think it's pretty obvious. We're not to do those things. But the flesh wants to do those things. How am I going to keep from doing those things? Walk in the Spirit. If I walk in the Spirit, I won't do those things. Wow, almost sounds like a list of standards, doesn't it? I'm not to do those things. And by the way, man, those things are mentioned in the law. In the law, Witchcraft is mentioned in the law. Adultery is mentioned in the law. There are a lot of those things mentioned. It's not wrong to obey the law. Because the law is good and the law is holy. It's not wrong to obey it. But the law can't send me to hell. I've been justified. So how am I going to be free then to not walk after the flesh? Walk after the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he starts out, he starts giving examples of what we will do if we walk in the spirit. So as he's covering walking in the spirit, you'll notice it, for instance, in chapter 6, verse 1, brethren... If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest also be tempted. You'll look out for one another. Now, that's something you can't do over the Internet. 
I mean, if everybody's in a different home, you know, they're having home church, I'm mean, not going to be much help to anybody else. This is something you do. That's why we assemble. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're to exhort one another. Uh, and to do that, we've got to be together. Then he says, bear ye one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. And then he says, for if a man think himself to be something, when he has nothing, he deceiveth himself. In other words, keep humble, keep walking in the Spirit. I, the only reason that I can walk like I need to walk is because of him, not because of me. So now I'll go ahead and walk in the Spirit. I can do that. Uh, you see, if a Christian is not walking in the Spirit, that's not God's fault. That's not your friend's fault. It's not your parent's fault. It's not the pastor's fault, not the deacon's fault. It's your fault. Now, thank God, if you're saved, you're still justified. Even if you are walking after the flesh, you're still justified. You're still going to heaven. But you can do better. You can walk better. If you read the passage in Romans chapter 6, and we'll not take the time to read that, but he gives a number of commands to believers about our walk. Those commands, that's on us. We're to obey those things, not in order to go to heaven, but because we are going to heaven, because we've been justified. And so then he goes on, verse 4, but let every man prove his own work. Verse 5, for every man shall bear his own burden. Uh, Verse 6, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth. Show benevolence too is the idea of the word communicate there. And then he gives a warning. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall they also reap. If you're going to walk after the flesh, you're going to reap after the flesh. And that reaping is not going to be good. And again, you have no one to blame but yourself. Can't blame the reaping on anybody else but just yourself. Own it. Start sowing right. And you'll reap right. But again, this has to do with walking in the spirit. So now he's gotten to the end of that. He's got a few last things he's going to say to these people. They have been nothing but blistered throughout this entire book. He has really nailed them. So notice what he says. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. Now, evidently, like, for instance, to the church at Rome, he had an amanuensis by the name of Tertius that is mentioned. Uh, Amanuensis would have been like a secretary writing down what he had to say. But Paul is saying here, I wrote this with my own hand. And he wrote it with large letters. Now, it wasn't because he was shouting with large letters. That wasn't it. You know, like you put everything in caps and you're text to show that you're shouting it. I guess you do that. I don't know. But that's not it. Evidently, it seems to be possible that the Apostle Paul had an eye disease when he was with them. You remember he said they would have given their own eyes to him back in chapter chapter 4 when he was with them. Remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. There are some who speculate, and they can only speculate because God doesn't tell us what that was, that it might have been ophthalmia, which is an eye disease, kept them continually running. Evidently, he may have had trouble with his eyes. We don't know if it was a permanent trouble, temporary trouble, whatever it was, it, uh, it was troubling to him. So he says, as many as, he's letting them know, he's writing this himself. He wants them to know how important this letter is to him and should be to them. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they 
That's the people he's been talking about that came and preached that other gospel. He says, they um, constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now, what on earth is he talking about? He says, the reason they tell you to be circumcised, they don't want to be persecuted by other Jews. Remember, the Jews that were zealous for the law in the church at Jerusalem, they started rumors on Paul in Acts chapter 21. Rumors that were not true. And so these people that had followed Paul around, they were preaching something, not as much that they themselves believed it, but they were preaching it so that the Jews wouldn't come back on them. When Paul preached at Thessalonica, the Jews that were there stirred up the devout women against him. And he had to leave town. At Berea, again, the Jews, persecution. The reality is there are some people who preach and their messages are generic because they don't want to have to put up with the hassle. People get mad when you get specific. I mean, they get angry mad. And they'll curse you. They'll run you off. That's a problem that a lot of pastors have. Maybe part of the reason why the average time for a pastor at a church is only three years because finally he gets fed up with things and starts telling them the truth about their sin and they don't like hearing about their sin they says they do that because they're trying to avoid the persecution but wait notice what he goes on to say for neither they themselves are circum uh, who are circumcised keep the law here these people are telling you that you've got to obey the law and be circumcised by the according to the law in order to get to heaven, but they don't even keep the law. Sure, they may be circumcised, but they break the law, as all of us do. So it's silly that one command in the law would actually give you righteousness, would actually get you to heaven while you're breaking a bunch of other commandments in the law. He's still getting after these people, trying to get them to see how obvious it is That salvation is like he told it to him the first time by grace through faith. He says, um, uh, but desire to have you circumcised. Now get this, that they may glory in the flesh. You know why? So they can come back and brag about how many people they got circumcised. You know, there are people that do that to get professions of faith that aren't real. Not that they're necessarily meaning to have false professions, but they want to have a lot so they sound good. When we have our vacation Bible school, now we have a good number of professions in vacation Bible school, but one of the things we teach our soul winners in vacation Bible school, to use a modern day word, we vet the young people that come forward. They're not all ready to get saved. Some only came forward because their friends came forward. Some come forward because they think they're going to get something in here that the kids aren't getting in the other room. The reality is, I dare say that if Brother Pinkerton stood up in our vacation Bible school and said, I want you, all you young people, I want you to pray this prayer out loud. And then he prays the prayer that's on the back of a track. And they follow along and pray it. He said, now, now, Brother Pinkerton would not do this, but then he would say something like this. Now, I want all you workers to count all of those who prayed. If you prayed just a moment ago, raise your hand. Woo, looky there. Out of the 400 that we had here today, we had 375 saved. No, you had 375 pray. 
Actually, all you did was have 375 repeat. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. See, the reason we send some back in, it's obvious they're not ready yet. I'm not interested in saying we had 375 professions of faith by simply getting people to pray while we're talking. You can get anybody to pray. Hey, there are a lot of Catholics. Baptist comes along and says, pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven when you die. And the Catholic's thinking, well, I prayed the Catholic prayer. Now, if I pray the Baptist prayer, that ought to be good enough. One of them is bound to get me to heaven. So they pray a prayer that they don't even understand. And now they... They think, surely they've got it settled. They don't have to worry about it. They're good. And they don't have it good at all. That was these people with circumcision. The only thing that mattered was that how many they had circumcised. So they could brag about it. See, I, <laughs> I never have put notches on my gospel gun, meaning my New Testament that I use to win people to Christ. I don't know how many of them really get saved and how many don't. I do know this. All of them that really believe are saved. That's all I know. I don't know how many of them are tares and how many of them have become wheat. It's not that, that's not something that we, uh, we brag about. We just thank God for everyone that gets saved. Everyone that's really born again. But I'll tell you, as a pastor, my burden is this. I want to see people get saved once. I don't want to see each of them get saved ten times. We believe once saved, always saved. I believe the Bible teaches that with all my heart. Once you're saved, you're saved forever. And yet an awful lot of our people in our independent Baptist churches have made five and six professions of faith. It's not necessary. Now, I'm getting a little field here from just the passage, but I want you to understand that. Uh, when I get missionary letters from people, and they say, We've had, we had 1,800 saved last year. Good. How many are you running? Uh, we run 50. Uh, not, wait, I have a problem with that. There's something wrong with that kind of salvation. That's not salvation at all. Matter of fact, there was one brother uh, in another state who sent out a paper every year. And I remember one year I got his paper and it said that they had over 2,200 professions of faith. They baptized... I believe it was 120, might have been less than that, but 120. said, so, well, praise God, 120. Praise God for all the, the, yeah, that's good. But their attendance didn't go up or down Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night. It was the same the very next year. That would be like the 120 going out on the day of Pentecost, seeing 3,000 saved and baptized, and the next day they're still only running 120. The church never would have grown with that kind of salvation. This salvation changed lives. Now, what Paul is simply saying to the Galatians, these people are all about face. They're all about pride. They're all about people thinking they're something special by what they're spreading. Now, having said that, he says, but God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I mean, what a marvelous privilege that we have to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we see a bunch of people saved, praise God. If we don't, praise God. There were places Jesus went where he saw multitudes come to him. 
And there are places where that very same Jesus went where they ran him out of town. When he preached at Nazareth, they ran him out of town. He was the same Jesus both places. Same Jesus. So we need to understand that. And by the way, people get one. We're just workers in the vineyard. He's the one that's doing the work in the hearts, not us. We're just doing what we're told to go and tell. He's the one that wins them. All right, with that in mind, notice he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Now, we can look at a couple of things here. If you're not a new creature, you obviously didn't get it. But the point is, it's not circumcision that saves. Paul was not against circumcision. As a matter of fact, you'll remember, he had, uh, he had Titus, not Titus, he had Timothy circumcised. Timothy's mother was a Jewess. His grandmother was a Jewess. And the reason he had Timothy circumcised was so that it would not be a stumbling block when he gave the gospel to Jews. That'd be taken care of. He makes a point of telling us that he did not have Titus circumcised. Why? Titus was not a Jew. Titus was a Gentile. And as a Gentile, there was absolutely no need for him to be circumcised. Circumcision was not wrong. The only wrong part is doing it in order to be saved. I say the only wrong part. That's a big wrong part, and it never should take place. So it says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy... And upon the Israel of God, for from henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when he goes to write Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verses twenty-three through about thirty-two, he gives a long list of things that he suffered in serving Christ. I think that's an amazing thing, by the way, in this study that's going on about the King James Bible that we've been doing. We see how the people who, whether it be Tyndale or those that were around him, up to the uh, King James Bible, people paid with their blood. And all this stuff, these other people, they're being paid. They don't suffer for what they've done. They've not suffered about forgetting out the truth. They get paid well. Now, that's just, just a side fact, part of the fruit of the whole thing. But we get to the last verse. And the last verse, to me, stands out. It's, it's different than his other letters. Because he simply says, it's like he is so disgusted with this whole thing. Because these people that he had won to Christ so easily listened to some people who had it wrong. He said, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That's how it ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. He's still not praising because he doesn't know how they're going to receive this letter. You have to understand, with all that this man had suffered to get the gospel to them, how he had been stoned in getting the gospel to him, carried out of the city as, as though dead, and maybe he was dead and God raised him from the dead, the, the Bible's not super clear on that, but he seemed to be dead when they took him out of the city. And you look at all the suffering that he had gone through in that list of the sufferings that he had had in his service for Christ. And these people were turned aside so easy from the clear gospel that he preached to a gospel of works that doesn't save anybody. 
I think I'd be disgusted too. Especially when these people, the people you gave spiritual birth to in getting them the gospel, and they just just go off to the latest televangelist without a television. And people do that. I remember Dr. John Rawlings, who pastored uh, Landmark Baptist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. He said one day he was out preaching at some church in the country. And uh, a lady came, came up to him after the service. And she said, Dr. John, I want you to know that your messages on the radio have been such a blessing to my life. They have helped me in so many ways. As a matter of fact, there's only two preachers that I send money to every month. I send you $5, and I send $5 to Herbert W. Armstrong. He said, my head head had started to go like this, and suddenly, what a heretic. And I'm not talking about John Rawlings. Herbert W. Armstrong. She wasn't paying any more attention than the man in the moon. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in our churches who don't, which is why they're so easily led astray. It's amazing how much money. You can have somebody like Oral Roberts get on TV. God told me that if all my prayer partners would send, uh, I don't remember the amount now, but $149.50, it was some amount. That wasn't it probably, but it was some amount like that, that he would give me a cure for cancer. So while he raked in the millions, evidently they didn't give enough because God did not give him the cure for cancer. Now, anybody should have been able to see through that. But you know, it's amazing a lot of people can't. They don't get it. Justified by faith. Still the message. No other way to be saved. You've got the whole book. It's all about that. And you see the disgust in Paul toward people that should have known better. And yet they allowed that kind of stuff. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Use these things to solidify our hearts upon your truth. And God bless us as a people. May we be faithful in our witness for the Son of God. Bless our services this Sunday, we pray. Bless our people. Keep them safe and well. Uh, The ones that we have that are sick and at home. God, please meet their needs in this hour. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.